The Reverend Anthony Robinson tells this story about his sister's death. From the Wednesday in mid-July, when my sister called with word of her illness to the bright Sunday afternoon in August when she died, death was a revelation. It put everything else in a different light. In a culture where we control so much or believe we do, Robinson says, death is not ours to control. And in the end, there was something more, a luminosity. It was 40 days from the day my sister Regan called to tell me that an MRI had revealed metastatic cancer in her liver, lymph glands, lungs, and brain until the Sunday she died. Six years earlier, she had been treated for breast cancer. It had metastasized suddenly. Were these 40 days a Lent lodged in summer? I tried that idea out as I sat alone for a few days after her death, trying to make sense of the experience of the past five and a half weeks. During those weeks, there was mourning going on, of course. Mostly the mourning was that of friends and family. But my sister seemed remarkably serene. Our 40 days were more of a time of being awake for her, of being alert in the best way. Perhaps that is what Lent ought to be and maybe what it was intended to be. We are not giving up tokens of life like chocolate or television. We are surrounding a loved one. We lived those 40 days at an edge, a boundary. Death was intersecting life, revealing us to ourselves. Anthony Robinson goes on to tell how his sister chose to be at home rather than fighting the cancer, a decision that was not easy for her family and her friends to accept. Rather than choosing surgery and other treatments to buy her some more time, Regan chose to put her affairs in order, spend time with family and friends, and enjoy the time that she had left. In the evenings, we had parties, writes Robinson. Every night, friends came for drinks and dinner. My nephew, a chef, cooked. We sat on the deck overlooking a tidal estuary on Puget Sound. We watched as northern harriers, a type of hawk, made their banks and turns. Cedar waxwings hunted berries, Red-winged blackbirds hung like flags on the pussy willows. Swallows had made my sister's home their own. We drank wine and ate leisurely dinners as the long evenings of a northwest summer unfolded. We listened to ball games on the radio, read poetry, told stories, and hugged a lot. Now, this is not a typical story. In fact, it is quite unusual. At least among white people who have some money, a terminal diagnosis usually brings a flurry of activity, activity that can last well into the person's dying days. The Western medical establishment rewards heroic doctors. These doctors want to cure people, and this is a very good instinct to a point. As a minister, I often get a very different perspective on a person's last months or days. That different perspective leaves me wondering, 
if our culture's fear of death is doing us all any good or not. Here is how the story often goes. An active middle-aged or older person is not feeling well for a few weeks and they go to their doctor. An MRI shows an unexpected tumor somewhere in the body causing the illness. The devastated patient tells their family and friends they have cancer or some other scary disease. The family and friends rally around the person and assure them that they will beat this illness. Doctors rush in to take tests and suggest treatments, bring in specialists, and schedule endless appointments. The person is buoyed up by all of the attention and begins to believe that they will beat their cancer too. Months of chemotherapy and radiation pass with all of the horrible side effects. Sometimes this works. Sometimes it doesn't. Tests come back hopeful, only to be dashed in a week or so by another test. The person and their family cling frantically to hope. They consult doctor after doctor. They attend support group after support group. They spend days on end in hospitals and oncology centers. They learn about experimental treatments and rush to get on the lists for these. And then the fateful day comes when the doctor grimly explains that nothing more can be done. It is time for hospice. The end is near. Now, cancer runs in my family, along with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, and so I fully expect to get some dreaded illness at some point in my life. And I hope that I will deal with it gracefully, but I'm not so sure I will. Really, come on, let's not kid ourselves. It feels much more empowering to bounce from one treatment to another than to recognize illness is a part of nature and that it invades human bodies. I would hope my grounding in Unitarian Universalism would allow me to accept my illness as it comes. I would hope my faith would allow me to take reasonable measures and not heroic ones. And I would hope my trust in God would allow me to release myself from this life willingly when the time comes. We can all fantasize about our own deaths and how we will handle it, but none of us really knows what it will be like. The best we can do is prepare for the inevitable, and we can practice letting go of loved ones who die before we do. Part of the reason funerals and memorial services are so important is that they give us a chance to practice this letting go, this very letting go that we will have to do ourselves. The more we can come to terms with death, with the death of a loved one, the less we are likely to fear our own death. The more we can offer comfort to our friends and family, the more we can be reassured that they will receive comfort when we have gone. Funerals and memorial services are not for the dead. They are for the living. But if they are shortchanged, the work is diminished. Now, recently, there was a very large memorial service in this sanctuary for a well-known Concord resident who had died in a tragic accident at age 62. I know some of you were there. 
Her dazed, unchurched husband and children came to see me a month or so before that service to talk about a memorial service. They were interested in First Parish because it was, in their words, big enough and not religious. This was not the first time that I had heard an allergic reaction to religion from someone talking to me, a minister, (laughs) and it won't be the last. What they meant by not religious was they didn't want to have to say a creed or the Lord's Prayer or hear any scripture or any of that kind of stuff. I don't know if this reputation of ours of being not religious is a good thing or not. We certainly did that family a lot of good. As I always do with the unchurched, I explained why a memorial service is important and walked them through the planning process. I assured them that the content was up to them and we began to choose various components of the service. The day of the service, however, I knew that the non-religious secular world had been at work in the planning as well. People gathered in this sanctuary, and they were in a chatty, social mood. The place was packed. Every single seat was taken. Folks were elegantly dressed, and they were hugging and waving to each other. It was a din in here before the service started. I knew that this family's fear of death was so great that it would be hard to allow any space for grief in this service. And I knew that I was the only one in the room other than Beth and Eric, who could turn this festive celebration of life into a memorial service. When the first of the six speakers stood up to eulogize the deceased, he finished his long remembrance with a flourish, and applause broke out. Chills shot through me because I knew that if the congregation clapped for the first speaker, they would clap for the other five as well. Feeling like a complete Grinch, I stepped to this microphone and said, let me gently remind us all that this is a solemn occasion. No applause, please. And some in the congregation that morning actually booed me. Fear of death. They wanted an awards ceremony, not a funeral. If we don't talk about her being dead, maybe she won't be. In 2019, it is countercultural to be religious, it is countercultural to connect ourselves to a congregation, it is countercultural to pool our resources. It is countercultural to realize that we do not have all the answers, and that is just fine. It is countercultural to raise children to be selfless and giving. It is countercultural to admit that we each are just a tiny bit of a vast creation, a creation that goes on endlessly. It is countercultural to admit that we are in constant need of forgiveness and in constant need of forgiving others. 
For the world that you and I live in is vastly bigger than the particularities of our own lives. This world connects us at least seven generations into the past and seven generations into the future simultaneously. You and I are one with the stars whose radiance travels light years to our eyes. You and I are one with the earthworm in the forest. So what if we also lifted up the value of dying on our own terms? What if we could help one another fear death less? What if we could give permission to actually live until we die? Death was the only conclusion Anthony Robinson expected for his sister Regan. And yet death's coming was as profound as her choice to live well her last days. That last morning, a beautiful Sunday, her breathing was hard labor, he writes. I heard what pastoral work taught me to know as a death rattle. We held hands. We prayed. Shortly after 1 p.m., it was over. I understood then why people speak of death as passing away. It was as if Regan had passed away, the precise instant of death unclear, as she passed from this life into whatever lies next. I, too, have been present a few times at the moment of death. I know Marion has as well. It is an amazing thing to see a person move from being alive to no longer there, just a body. There's nothing romantic about this passing away. Often the person has been in some degree of discomfort or agitation for a while. Often the family and friends exhibit a, quite a wide variety of degrees of acceptance of this death. Often nurses and other staff bustle efficiently around as if death were something quite routine. Often a loved one gets there too late, or a loved one finds that they have actually stayed too long with the dying person. Often people think that they should know how to grieve and blame themselves for doing it wrong. Often the moment of death is not graceful or well-timed. The best a person's family and friends can do is increase the odds of a peaceful death by letting the dying person go at their own rate. In recent decades, hospice services have greatly increased the chances of a person dying on their own terms. Now, if this sermon this morning has made you uncomfortable, I would encourage you to examine your discomfort. If it has made you grieve someone, I would urge you to allow that grief to run its course. If it has frightened you, ask yourself where your fear comes from. If it has made you bold, make good plans from your boldness. If it has offered you comfort, share that comfort with someone else. And if this sermon has made you want to be of support to others, in their living and in their dying, you need look no further than this congregation for ample opportunities. The amazing thing about being part of a church family is that we do not have to live alone 
or die alone. Here we are held in the bonds of love and friendship. Here our lives have meaning. Here we will be remembered. So be it. Amen.